Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. No country has been immune from this pandemic, but Colombia's President Ivan Duque has won some praise at home for his leadership and for helping keep the human toll relatively low. The pandemic gave him a path to become himself because he's not colliding with his own party, Alvaro Uribe's party. So I think what we saw in this, the president becoming his own man. Colombia's story seen from the outside looks pretty good, at least compared to the rest of Latin America right now as we sit here in, in early July 2020. Uh, the COVID outbreak has been painful, uh, but less so than in many places. The death toll in Colombia is somewhere in the 2000s, uh, thanks to a quick response by national, state, and local authorities. The economy is also not as bad uh, as it has been elsewhere. And it also has a president, an Ivan Duque, who has embraced science and democracy, which neither of which should be taken for granted right now in the region either. But it's still a country with many, many complications from the deaths of social leaders uh, to a peace process that has sort of gone in fits and starts. And it's a country where when you talk to people, things from the inside, uh, they, they say, often don't look as good. So to talk about some of these issues, I'm joined today on the podcast uh, from Bogota by Laura Gil, a political analyst who is director of the consultancy Dialogos y Estrategias, a fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy, and the director of the political an analysis site La Línea del Medio. Um, so, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thanks to you, Brian. A pleasure to be here. So, you know, you're joining us from Bogota, and before we get into kind of the political intricacies of Colombia right now, could you just describe uh, what you've been seeing in the city uh, over the last days and weeks amid this pandemic? I mean, how does it compare to elsewhere in the world? I haven't seen much because I have been at home. And I have been at home, <laughs> Brian, because um, although the government's response in the very beginning was a success, and I think that showed in the popularity levels of President Duque immediately after his initial response to the pandemic, the situation is deteriorating and is deteriorating rapidly, especially in two places, Bogota and Barranquilla, both are the largest cities. So right now we have 95,000 confirmed cases and deaths have climbed to 3,200. The surge has been fast and the government is struggling on how to respond. Yeah, and I, you say that and I just think of all these countries all over Latin America, uh, Peru, Chile, especially where you know, the government's received so much praise internationally and in many cases from their own populations for a quick response. And yet this, you know, this damn virus uh, continues to, to spread anyway. So let's let's talk about Ivan Duque. This is a president whose approval rating going into this crisis was quite low. You know, it was somewhere around 20, 23 percent in some polls. And then it rose to 52% in April, and some polls have, have shown it declining since. How would, you, how would you evaluate his performance so far in this crisis? I would say it's a pass 
but if he doesn't react quickly, it might turn into a fail because the last thing we need we need is to see Bogota turn into Guayaquil with people dying in the streets. So he has still the time to react. And the struggle, the power struggle between Bogota and the national government serves no one, especially not not the cities, you know, the residents of Bogota, those of us who live here. That that would be my answer about Duque. But I, I think there's something important to point out to an international audience about this. Duque is a man who has very little political experience. He was only a one-time senator before becoming president, who comes there basically placed in the presidency by Alvaro Uribe's popularity. And he doesn't have that much margin of maneuver in most of the relevant topics in Colombia, war, peace, security. And with the virus, he found his own place. Yeah, I mean, his his going into this crisis, his own party didn't particularly trust him because they thought that he was too moderate. And of course, the left and much of the center didn't particularly trust him either because he's uh, Uribista. And the pandemic gave him a way, a path to become himself because this is an area where he's not colliding with his own party. Alvaro Uribe's party. So I think what we saw in this rise in popularity that you pointed out was exactly that, the president becoming his own man. In the case of Colombia, though, you know, there's been a lot of focus on local and state officials, especially in places like Medellin and the broader um, state of Antioquia, uh, where you know, the response has been, has been seen at least as, as pretty good. I mean, how, how has that dynamic played out? The very beginning, it was not clear which powers uh, mayors and governors had and which powers the president had um, in terms of the response. So there were some legal questions about that. That was finally solved through dialogue between mayors, governors, and the president. And the lockdown, the national lockdown that was dictated by the president was a lockdown that had all the support from local authorities and a majority of the population. There's a struggle right now between the Bogota mayor and the president because she wants to go back a lockdown in Bogota. And he's very pressed by the economic centers, by the private sectors for a full opening up of the economy. And the economy has been opening up for the past 40 days, I would say, with a lot of exceptions. Most of the sectors are already working. And the surge, the rate of contagion has been very, very high. I mean, he's he's been fairly you know, clear about the risks of this virus. And he's talked about coronavirus. Yeah, he said, unlike a lot of leaders in the Americas, including the one here in the United States, um, you know, he's not promising that this thing will magically go away. I mean, he even recently said that Colombians should be prepared to celebrate Christmas um, with COVID-19 still around. Um, but as happens elsewhere, when leaders are tough, on the virus and and want people to practice social distancing, it has you know, it has a really really rough effect on the economy. And there's some data showing that Colombia's economy contracted by twenty percent um, 
which puts it actually kind of in the middle of the road when it comes to a bunch of other economies in the world right now. That was in April. Um, but, you know, I, I guess the question is, do his does his sort of decline in approval ratings over the last couple of weeks suggest that Colombians, like everybody else, are getting tired of not just the pandemic, but the response to the pandemic as well? I think it's both. I think is that we are back to the the frustrations with the president that preceded the pandemic, and on top of that, the pandemic. So I think unless he is able to respond in the health, you know, health wise and economic wise with a stronger response, I think he may go back to the initial popularity levels prior to the pandemic. The thing is that when you talk about, you say, you say Colombia is in the middle of the road, it's also in the middle of the road in terms of the economic response. So, I mean, there's not much fiscal space in the sense that if you stay within orthodox economic responses, what well, you will say there's no fiscal expense. But there are a lot of people saying all over the world, we have to think differently now. And the government is still worried about orthodox views. And we keep on saying there needs to be a stronger fiscal response for this. Throw, you know, the books away. Well, and it's interesting hearing about that sort of prevailing view of fiscal prudence. I know that Colombia is a country that takes great pride in the fact that, uh, you know, it was one of very few Latin American countries that did not default on its debt during the 1980s, nor have, you know, a really bad experience with hyperinflation. It's also a country that kind of kept all its macroeconomic indicators more or less sorted, even during some really awful times. And, uh, you know, the the drug-fueled violence and the, the FARC-fueled violence of the 80s and 90s. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe the current times call for, for something different. Um, talk to me about this, you know, this, this mess that I've been watching from afar somewhat uh, mesmerized and horrified this incident that happened recently with the so-called Eva free day, the, the day where they declared a one day tax holiday on the, the value added tax. What can you tell me about what happened there? No, that was a disaster. Uh, first of all, I will tell you that the Eva that's the sales tax. And in Colombia, the sales tax is a national tax and it's set at 19%. So, the day with no tax, it's an important day because savings are substantial. The president decided that in order to boost spending, what he will do is declare three days without IVA. You know, we had the first one on June 21st, and the second one is going to take place on the July 3rd. In the first one, the agglomerations were such that we had in the morning, 35 you know, places where you have 20, you had 2,500 people gather in very, very small spaces. I mean, no social distancing whatsoever. In the afternoon, you had 85, 85 congregations of people of around 500. We still don't know the consequences. Yeah, you're really not supposed to do that in the year 2020, right? And because now they're blaming the customers, they're blaming the people, they're blaming the Colombians. Well, the government gave them the incentives to go by at a substantial saving. 
So that's what I was referring about in the very first part of the program, Brian, when you were asking me about Ivan Duque. I was saying, yes, this is one of the reasons why he's moving towards a failed. Right now, a lot of us are asking that the next um, day without the tax be only for e-commerce. And school is about to begin. Colombia, Bogota has a number of neighborhoods that are very, you know, in very, in very dark socioeconomic situations. We will see a lot of people will come out to buy school materials for their kids, and we fear a repeat of that. So let's look beyond the pandemic a little bit um, and look at this issue that you know has been around for years now, this issue of the peace process in Colombia. The government has announced that the budget for peace issues is protected, at least at the moment. This includes funding for victim support, repatriation of fighters into civilian life, and ongoing transitional justice initiatives as well. How would you just, I mean, I know you've been involved, maybe you can explain your part of this story a little bit, Laura, how you've been involved in this issue. If you take a step back, how would you, how would you describe the peace process right now to an audience that maybe, you know, checks in on Colombia every now and then? How, how, if at all, has, have things been modified as a result of the pandemic? Well, I would say the the peace process is comatose. The peace agreement was never meant to be only a demobilization agreement. It was meant to demobilize the fighters, but also produce substantial changes in politics and in Colombia, in the Colombian economy. So what has been happening is that President Duque has turned the peace agreement into a demobilization agreement. Not much has been done in terms of the rural reform that was chapter one, opening up political participation, which is chapter two. The chapter on drugs has been severely cut down as the government is moving towards reinitiating um, flumigation. So it is for them only a demobilization and recuperation of combatants agreement, no more than that. But the peace agreement has 300 pages. And, you know, most of the patients are not of the liking of the, of the president. But this is the thing, right? I mean, it is a... It's always been this sort of delicate line for Duque, or at least it seemed that way to me, where, you know, he had so much of his party and so much of his base, which was opposed to the peace agreement in the first place. He comes from a different place ideologically. You know, he he has a long history as kind of a a Washington-based technocrat who worked many years in the IDB and who came to office saying basically that he wanted to, you know, make modifications to the peace agreement rather than toss it out entirely. But in practice, it's been, at least it seems to me, it's been muddled, right? Because he he, he seems, it's a government that seems willing to push this forward, but sometimes without that much enthusiasm. Well, those of us who defend the peace agreement, we don't care whether it's enthusiasm or not. We want things to be done. So I'll tell you, you told me um, to explain a little bit where I was coming from. I belong to the peace movement in Colombia called Let's Defend Peace, Defendamos La Paz. 
the position is the following. We cannot expect a government that can paint against the peace agreement to implement the 300 pages of the peace agreement. We understand that. Let's make an agreement on fundamentals. The rest will have to be left for another government to implement or not. So what do you mean exactly by fundamentals? Fundamental is that, well, President Duque of this agreement, tell us what you like and we will support and we will work together on implementing what you like. The rest will leave it for the next election. The transitional period contemplated in the peace agreement is supposed to last 15 years. Everyone knows that the changes we need to make in Colombia are not going to happen overnight or are only going to be done by one government. The problem with this is every time Defendamos La Paz is close to a dialogue with the government, every single time the party of Álvaro Uribe, the Centro Democrático, the Democratic Center, sort of gets in the way. The latest incident was that the Minister of Defense had sent a very important signal saying we will not keep on trying to find ways to change the agreement legally through reforms in Congress. We will not do that. We will simply talk about implementation. Implementation of what we consider is important in the peace agreement, but we will you know, resign ourselves to the fact that the agreement is what it is and we will not try to change it in Congress anymore. That was such an important announcement, Brian, because it was the announcement that, that you know, gave the possibility to all the sectors to sit down and say, well, let's talk about implementation. Next day, the Democratic Center announced a legal reform to change the transitional justice system. So you see... We want to bring realism, pragmatism to the conversation. And we think Duque is a moderate one with whom all sectors could talk to. The problem is every time we try, the party gets in the way. Yeah. Well, that doesn't that doesn't particularly surprise me to hear that. Um, where do you think, I mean, looking now at the way the world has changed with the pandemic and a government that is clearly going to have other priorities now. And look, I mean, this is this has been difficult in part because even by the 2018 election, polls suggested that a lot of Colombians had kind of moved on from the peace process, right? I remember seeing polling showing that they saw it as the seventh most important priority for the next president behind, you know, kind of regular middle-class country stuff like uh, corruption and unemployment and healthcare and education and all these other issues. Where do you think this is going to go now over the, and this being the peace process is going to go now over the next two years or so, if you have a country that was already somewhat apathetic about it and a government that is now clearly going to have other priorities on its hands? Well, it is related to the pandemic because the big challenge for social movements right now is how to have the same sort of influence in policy making if you're not able to gather. Yeah, absolutely. Remember the year of the marches, Hong Kong, Chile, Nicaragua. I mean, there were so many marches, also Colombia. In Colombia, in November, we had major protests. It was about labor reform. It was about tax reform. It was also about the peace agreement. And the problem is that when 
we were seeing that there was a conversation that began as a result of these marches, the pandemic arrived. And you cannot have the same influence in policymaking if you're not able to go to the streets. Look at what happened in these states in terms of Black Lives Matter. I mean, it is mattering now because people are gathering in defiance of the social distancing. So right now here, um, the social movement is stuck because in Colombia, we cannot allow the healthcare system overwhelmed because it would be a tragedy. So the social movement does not want to be part of that. The social movements, I mean, the several social movements. And the big challenge is how to keep pressing the government to pay attention to the peace agreement when you have a peace agreement, when you have a government that does not care very much about it and circumstances that do not allow you to to be heard. And um, I mean, this is playing into the hands of the government. Well, Laura, it's just another example of how some of the best laid plans for 2020 have been turned upside down over the last couple of months. But, you know, you cite the, the, the way that the Black Lives Matter protests were able to make uh, a huge difference here in the United States anyway. And I guess it'll be interesting to see um, what happens in Colombia as well. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast today and, and stay safe out there. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.